All right, everybody should have a study guide. It says Acts 2, 37 through 41 at the top. If you don't have one, you can throw a hand up and some folks up here, we can get them back there to you. A lot of folks out of town, so we got some empty seats right here. If this ever happens again, I'm screwing up. Okay. Uh, you can go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 2. Coming through the book of Acts together, we land today in God's sovereignty. And by His plan, we land at Acts chapter 2, verse 37 through 41. Let's read this together, okay? Everybody settled in with a study guide here. Let's get your eyes on Acts 2, starting verse 37. It's the Word of God. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, and for your children, and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And with many other words, He bore witness... And continue to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Let's pray together and ask the Lord to help us. Father, we come to you in need of your help right now. Lord, we're looking at beautiful, amazing words, God, from your mouth, breathed out by you. And God, we feel a temptation to take them lightly, to glaze over them quickly, God. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to resist that temptation. But that you would let your word come with power. God, you've proved that all throughout your word, that that's what you do. Your word comes. And when your hand is with us, God, there's a move of power, God, to where you change people, Lord. You save souls and you build up the body of Christ. Please, God, do that with us this morning. Lord, we're a small gathering of your disciples. And God, you know every soul. Holy Spirit, you know every soul. You know the soul of the one that loves you. You can, you can gaze into the soul of man like we can't. You know the soul of the lost person here today. You know those that need a word of comfort, God. You know, you can see, you can tell those who need the forgiveness of their sins. 
And I pray, God, that you would help us, please. We can't see those things, Holy Spirit, but you can. So let your word come in power as we read it and as we meditate on it together, please. I love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's start off. I want us to, as you're looking at your study guide there, to start off with the plain sense of this passage. I want us just to understand plainly what is here. What's in this passage of Scripture? And just thinking about the context, first of all, where is this sitting? So verse 37 now, it says, Now when they heard this, so this is sitting in the midst of some sort of time. Now when they heard this, and then we hear the rest of what happened. So what's the context here? Let me just say a few things. Christ, who was promised to come, He literally has been promised to come since the first humans walked on the planet. He has come. The head crusher of Satan has come. The all nations blesser. Uh, the, the lion in the land. The lion of the tribe of Judah. He's already come. The son of the, the, the David's son and yet David's Lord. He's already here. And not only that, but Christ Jesus has already been humiliated in his death. He's already experienced his Humiliation, not just the humiliation of God Almighty becoming human, as if that's not humiliating enough, but the humiliation that that one who becomes human, the God-man actually goes to a humiliating cross for us to die in our place. For the forgiveness of our sins, He's crucified in our place, absorbs the wrath of, the wrath of God. He, he's already experienced His humiliation by the time we come to our passage today. The Christ has also already experienced his exaltation. He died, but he rose from the dead. He rose from the dead, walked for 40 days, ascended on high to sit on a throne as king of heaven. And there he sits now as king on his throne. He's already experienced his humiliation, his exaltation, and his way. He's waiting even now. He's waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. All of them. All of his enemies made his footstool. And then there was this promise that this one, that when he ascended on high, that he would pour out the Holy Spirit on his church. That's already happened. In Acts chapter 2, where we're reading from, the Spirit of God has been poured out. And then God gave his people words, like he put a trumpet in their hands, he gave them, he calls them to trumpet the word of God. Peter stands up after the, the outpouring of the Spirit of God. Peter stands up and he preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. He preaches about Jesus who was attested by God, who was killed by God, who was raised by God, who, who ascended to his throne. Peter has preached this to thousands in Jerusalem. And so there, there's all the gathered thousands. And they're listening to spirit filled Peter. Preach the gospel. How are the multitudes going to respond to this preaching of the gospel? What will they say? What will they feel? What will they do? And that's what we have in our passage of Scripture. Chapter 2, verse 37 through 41 that we just read is the response of the multitudes to this Spirit-filled preaching of the gospel. <clears throat> verse 37, it tells us, that, tells us that they were cut to the heart. And that they begin to ask Peter in a desperate way, what must we do? What we see in verse 37 is the conviction of the Holy Spirit. The conviction of the Holy Spirit has fallen on these people. 
And so these people ask him, what must we do? Well, verse 38 and 39, we see Peter gives them an answer. And the main thing that he says to them, he calls them this. He says, this is what you must do. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. And he tells them, you receive the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I want to be really, really clear about something. Just here at the very beginning, I want to be really, really clear. A lot of clarity entering into, entering into our minds about what repentance is and what baptism is. Repentance. I want you to think about this. Re repentance is the inward response of turning away from sin into Christ. Repentance is that inward response of turning away from sin and to Christ. Baptism is that initial external expression of obedience to this Christ. So repentance is the internal turning away from sin to Christ and baptism is the initial external expression of that repentance. Wayne Grudem, he speaks about repentance like this. Listen to this definition. Repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncement of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. Here's the idea. Repentance involves sorrow over your sin and hatred over your sin. But it's not limited to that. 2 Corinthians 7 speaks about repentance. It says there is a godly sorrow that produces repentance. So repentance, yes, it involves a sorrow over sin. But it's not limited to that. It is a turning away from, from your sin. I want this to be really, really clear in our minds. I think sometimes there's things in the scripture, definitions like repentance and faith and other definitions. This should be really clear. The moment we hear it, we know what it's talking about. And I want us to have that today. So I want you to just think about a story. Think about Luke chapter 15 and the prodigal son. You go read Luke chapter 15 and verse 7 it uses this phrase, a sinner who repents. Luke 15, 10 says a sinner who repents. So the story in Luke 15 of the prodigal son is a story about a sinner who repents. Well, what do we see? We see a man that's gone his own way. He's rebelled against God. He has no interest in God. He's gone his own way away from his father. And it says in the midst of his situation, he realizes the, the nastiness of his situation, the desperate, pitiful nature of where he's at. And it says this phrase, and he came to his senses. It says that man all of a sudden, this is a, this is a direct quote from Luke 15. He came to his senses. Something happened on the inside. His mind was changed. His heart was changed. This man came to his senses and this is what he said. He said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go back to my father. And I'm going to say to him, I have sinned against you and against heaven. You see, repentance is a coming to your senses and realize you have sinned. You see the sinfulness of your sin. And then he said this, I'm going to say to my father, I'm not even worthy to be your son, but just to be your servant. Repentance is this coming to your senses, understanding your sin. You see the sinfulness of your sin and your unworthiness to be accepted by the father. And next it says that man, that prodigal son, he rose up and he went to his father. That's repentance. It's inside and it causes a change of course for you. It's a turn. As the scripture says, Paul says this in Acts 26, as he summarizes what he preached everywhere. He says, he preached this, repent and turn to God and do works fitting with repentance. So it's very simple. It's what the prodigal son did. It's repentance. 
Now, repentance is necessary for salvation. Luke 13, 3 says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And somebody might say, but what about faith? I thought faith was the response of salvation. I thought that's what it was. Yes, but listen to me. Repentance and faith are inseparable. They go together. They're two sides of the same reality. They're two sides of the same coin. There is no faith without repentance. There is no repentance without faith. Right here they say, what must we do, Peter? What must we do? And he says, repent. That's it. And when Paul was asked the same question in Acts 16, 30, what must I do to be saved, Paul? He says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So who's right, Peter or Paul? And the answer is they're both right. That these things slam together the response of salvation, the response that saves the soul, the response to the gospel is repentance and faith. And what we're talking about now is repentance. What about baptism? Baptism is that initial outward expression of the inward reality. When a believer who has been converted is immersed in water in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's baptism. Now obviously baptism doesn't save. Doesn't save you in the sense that there are many, many, many people who have been baptized. They have the outward expression, but they've never experienced the inward reality of repentance towards Christ. It's never happened. And so therefore their baptism doesn't save them. They just got wet. There's people that were baptized but will still go to hell. We see an example in Acts chapter 8 of a man who was baptized. And yet it's obvious as Peter addresses him later on that he was not truly converted. Baptism doesn't save. But listen to me. Baptism is intimately connected to your conversion. It's so intimately connected to conversion that when Peter tells them how to respond to the gospel, he says, repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. But what about what did Ananias say to Paul? We read about in Acts chapter 22 as Paul gives his testimony. And he said that Ananias said this to Paul. He said, Paul, rise up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. It's so intimately connected to your conversion, repentance and baptism. And so these people desperately ask, they're they're asking with a desperation, how do I respond to this Christ that you just preached to us, Peter? How do I respond? And he tells them, repent and be baptized. I hope repentance and baptism is very clear for you what it is. Okay. Look at verse 40. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them. What that tells us is that what we have recorded about what Peter said is not everything that Peter said. What we have recorded about what Peter said is recorded purposefully, but it's not everything that he said that day. But how do we summarize the rest of the stuff that he said? And he tells you right here, he's saying stuff like this in verse 40. Save yourself from this crooked generation. That's the summary of the rest of the stuff he says. Save yourself from this crooked generation. And then in verse 41, we see the response of all of this. The Spirit of God is poured out. The gospel is preached by Peter. And here's the ultimate result. It says in verse 41, those who received the word were baptized in obedience to what he had said. And they were added that day about 3,000 souls. They were added that day about 3,000 souls. Thousands of people gathered around. 3,000 of them were added that day to Christ. Here's what I want to do. 
I hope you get the plain sense of what we're looking at here. This is about, the resp about responding to the gospel and about these souls being saved in Jerusalem. I want you to see the beauty of this passage. This passage, brothers and sisters, is beautiful. It causes your heart to worship and adore the Holy Spirit, to worship and adore Christ. I want you to see this. I want you to see the beauty. And so please, let's, let's glory together in just a moment of the beauty of these events. So number one, I want you to see this. The Holy Spirit's work of conviction right here. The Holy Spirit's work of the conviction of sin. We see it in verse 37. How did they respond in verse 37? When they heard this, they were, listen, cut to the heart. And then they cried out, what must we do? They were cut to the heart and cried out. What must we do? So notice this description of the conviction of sin. The description is this. It's a word picture. Listen to the word picture. They were cut to the heart. Now what's being communicated when we hear that? That the Holy Spirit did some cutting here. The Holy Spirit picked up His sword. The sword, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And He went to slashing and dashing, slicing and dicing in the soul of man. He did that this day. Can you see this picture? That, that the Spirit of God did heart surgery on 3,000 souls this day. That the Spirit of God, He cut their heart until they bleeded conviction. Do you see how beautiful this is? That the Spirit of God is moving in the hearts of men. Slashing, slicing their hearts. It's a conviction of the Holy Spirit. Jesus talked about this in John 16 verse 8. Where Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes, He will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And that's exactly what he's doing here. The gospel has been preached and the Holy Spirit begins to convict these men and these women of sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, does it surprise you that the Holy Spirit has a ministry of soul slashing? Does that surprise you? And I think for some of you, it may surprise you. And the reason why I say this is because you live in a culture of this soft little gospel, the, the painless gospel that hurts nobody's feelings, just gives you a little information that you need to be saved. But the description we have here is every person that has been saved has been stabbed in the heart by the Holy Spirit. It's a wound of love. No painless salvation, but a wound of love that the Holy Spirit gives. You say, how is it a wound of love? Because if He doesn't wound you like this, you'll never be saved. If the Holy Spirit doesn't cause you to feel the desperate situation you're in as a sinner against an almighty God, you'll never be saved. These are wounds of love that He gives. Wounds of love. You remember last, uh, last week, Dustin... Uh, spoke against the idea, the common idea these days of what we ought to be doing, leaders of the local church, we ought to be preaching to felt needs. And Dustin spoke against that, this whole idea of surveying the crowd, saying, what are the felt needs? All right, let's preach to these felt needs here. Rather, what you see in Acts 2 is here's all these thousands of people that do not feel what Peter's about to preach about. They're not walking around going, man, I can't believe we crucified Christ. They're not doing that at all. And yet he looks at him, and that's exactly what he preaches to. You crucified the Holy One. And so what does the Holy Spirit do? This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit to take unfelt needs, the greatest need, which is often unfelt, and cause it to be desperately felt. And all of a sudden, these people are cut to the heart. They're stabbed in the heart. And what they bleed out, and this is beautiful, 
What they bleed out are these words. What must we do? Can you hear the desperation in that? It's not an intellectual question. They're not saying, excuse me, Peter, you forgot the part about what we got to do. It's not that. It's this desperate call of, we see our sin and we rip our clothes and we put ashes on our head. What do we do? That's the work of the Spirit of God. I want you to think about it. Think about it like this. If you, um, if you think about it, in Acts chapter 1, we talked about how the kingdom of God is connected to the Holy Spirit. So in Acts chapter 1, the last day that Jesus is walking on earth before he ascends on high, Acts chapter 1, they, they look at Jesus and they say, is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Is this when you're going to restore that kingdom? Is this when that kingdom's going to advance through all the earth? Is, that, is this when it's happening now? And you remember his response involved the Holy Spirit. His response to them was, it's not for you to know the times and seasons, but here's my answer. But you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea, and Samaria. In other words, here's how the kingdom of God is going to advance all of the earth. Not by war, not by violence. He's not going to cause them to submit in their bodies involuntarily. But rather, this is what he's going to do. He's going to put a spear on his people. They're going to preach a glorious gospel. And he's going to advance his kingdom amongst his enemies by subduing their hearts. And he's going to do it from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And then in the very end, in that second coming, he's going to come back. And that's when he finally he finishes off his enemies. Those who were never subdued in the heart, he finishes off his enemies with a rod of iron as he cracks their knees and every knee bows down. And this is the kingdom of God spreading through the Holy Spirit. And so what do we see in Acts 2? It's exactly what we see. The Spirit of God is poured out. God puts a trumpet in His people's mouth. They proclaim the gospel. And then what's the first enemy that will rise up against that glorious gospel of Jesus Christ? What's the first enemy that will do that? Our own hearts. And our hearts rise up in pride and rebellion. And then you just imagine the Holy Spirit grabbing the sword and slashing it to the ground so that souls will be saved. It's a glorious picture. And I want you to see the beauty of the Spirit's work of conviction. Second thing I want you to see, the beauty of these blessings of salvation. If you look at verse 38, and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. Here it is. Listen, two blessings for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Two blessings of salvation, the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Now this deals with your record. Before God and your relationship with God. Two major problems that all of us have. Is we have a sinful record before God. And we have a broken relationship with God. Two major needs that all of us have. This is the need. Listen to the need. You need your sinful record to be fixed or cleared. And you need your broken relationship with God to be mended or reconciled. These are the needs. And what we see in Christ Jesus and what He did is that both of these needs are met. That Christ goes to the cross so that we can be forgiven of sin and reconciled to God. Reconciled to God. So I want you to think for a minute about the, the sinful record. We need the forgiveness of sins because there's sins on our heavenly record. Think about uh, Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 and on to 15. It, it speaks about the great white throne judgment that's coming. And at that great white throne judgment that's coming, it says books are going to be open. 
And another book is open, which is the book of life. And the dead will be judged according to what's written in the books. What's written in the records. Imagine your sins all over, all your sins on the record. What will you do about that? And Christ comes and He goes to the cross and the sins are taken off the record, placed on Him. He's crucified. Wrath of God falls on Him in your place so that your record can be wiped clean. That's the forgiveness of sins. Now, if that's the only blessing of the gospel, we have reason to worship God for an eternity of eternities forever and ever to worship his holy name because our sins have been forgiven and the record has been cleared. But he does more than that. What about this broken relationship? Isaiah 59 two it says your sins have separated you from God. Your iniquities has hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. A broken relationship with God. Not only a sinful record, but we're separated from God. And, and, and listen to the kind of separation it is. It's this kind of separation. Psalm 711 says, God is a just judge. A God who's angry with the wicked every single day. That's the broken relationship. That's the separation that God is a just judge. And we're the wicked that He's angry with. Romans 5.10 calls us enemies of God. Yet while you were enemies of God. And yet Christ comes and He's the reconciler. He's the mediator. There's one God and one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus who gave Himself as a ransom for us all. Jesus made a way that the, that the two could be reconciled. He made a way by... He took our sin, which is our problem. And He took God's wrath, which is His problem with us. And He took them onto Himself at the cross... So that us and God can be reconciled. So that we can receive the greatest gift of salvation. Which is you get the Holy Spirit. Do you believe that? The greatest gift of salvation. That you get the Holy Spirit. You get God. I want you to see how beautiful that is. Third thing, I want you to see the beauty of the reach of this salvation. Or... The extent, how far does this salvation go? The extent or the reach of this salvation. I see this in verse 39. Look at it. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. For your children, all who are far off. As many as the Lord our God calls. What are we seeing about the reach of this salvation? It's a multi-generational reach of this salvation. It's an all nations reach of this salvation. As many as the Lord our God calls. We are testaments of that. That from this day until our day, every generation, it's for your children, every generation there's been a remnant that worship Christ. And we're a testament that has gone to all nations. And there's still nations for it to go to, but we are a part of the nations. Think about the beauty of that, of what's happened. He says it right here. This promise of salvation is offered up to your children, to all who are far off. We've seen that happening. And it's a beautiful thing. Now, quick thought here. Is this teaching universalism? Is this teaching that... All who are far off are saved. And therefore, all the children are saved. Is that what it's teaching? And absolutely not. Because what's the qualifier? To your children, to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call. 
And that calling there is talking about that powerful, effectual calling of God. It's not the calling where everybody gets to hear the gospel. It's that calling of God where he looks at Lazarus in the tomb and he says, come forth and Lazarus comes out of the tomb. It's where he says, let there be light and light shines. And that's what he does. It's the, it's the effectual calling of Romans chapter 8 verse 30 where it says, all those that he calls, he also justifies. This is the calling that always results in justification, always results in the salvation of a soul. It's that calling towards Lydia, where, where Lydia in Acts chapter, chapter 16, where God opened her heart that she might receive the things spoken by Paul. So this is a beautiful thing, a glorious thing. And I want you to see the beauty of the reach of this salvation, that our God is calling people out of darkness and into light in every generation and to those who are afar off, which is a whisper back to Acts 1.8, which says the gospels go into all nations. That's a beautiful thing. Just a sort of a side note here. See, see how it mentions your children. Can you imagine hearing that? The Spirit of God has fallen. You're saved. And He looks at you and He says, It's for your children. This promise is held out to your children. And I thought a lot and prayed even, even last night with a little group, for the children of Grace Community Church. So I see I make some eye contact with you around the room. And I want to encourage you that this verse just said, think about that. It's to your children. It's to your children. And I want to encourage you that this thing, this gospel, this glorious salvation is not just for the adults in this room, but children, you are called. Repent and be baptized. Come to Christ. This promise is to you and to your children. One more thing here, just a beautiful... The beautiful nature of these events. Number four, the salvation of a soul. The salvation of a soul. Chapter 2, verse 41, it says, So those who received the word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The salvation of a soul. Y'all, there's nothing more beautiful. Nothing more beautiful than the salvation of a soul. A soul headed for hell, but given light. A soul dead, but made alive. There's nothing more beautiful than the salvation of souls. Can you imagine these 3,000? Just consider them for a minute. 3,000 people, real people, like you and me, had names, grandmas, grandpas, moms, dads, brothers and sisters. These, these people, they're real people. And 3,000 on that day, this is just a beautiful thing, the salvation of a soul. We're taken from darkness to light. Beautiful thing. Can you imagine the rejoicing in heaven? The scripture says that the heaven rejoices over one sinner who repents. Can you imagine the rejoicing this day when 3,000 come into the kingdom? What about the rejoicing on earth? 120 disciples are in an upper room and they're crying out to God on this 10 day prayer meeting. The Holy Spirit comes and now 3,000 souls are saved. Can you imagine the rejoicing on earth? <clears throat> Can you imagine what that baptism looked like? What's it look like to baptize 3,000 souls as they're baptized that day? What about the following days when they had the Lord's meeting and they had the, they had the Lord's supper together and prayer meetings together? What did this look like? Think about the joy these souls are saved. There's nothing more beautiful than the salvation of a soul. <clears throat> and I want to encourage all of you here in light of these things to consider the salvation of your own soul. I, 
Some of you I don't know, but most of you I do. Think about that. God saved your soul. I've heard almost all of your testimonies about how you came to Christ. To join Grace Community Church, you have to give a testimony of how you came to Christ, to the leadership of the local church. And so that means I've heard a whole lot of testimonies and almost all of yours. And I just want you to think about that for a minute. Think God did this to your soul. I've heard about things like, like the six-year-old girl that's going to the Christmas party family and the, the story of Christ is read from her daddy. And all of a sudden, there's, there's this welling up inside of her. She feels her need for Christ. And she turns to the one that, she's read, that her daddy's reading her about and her soul is saved, six years old. Beautiful. I've heard that story. Or what about the, the, the uh, college student walking in godlessness and drunkenness and immorality and, and drugs and all this kind of stuff is there. And all of a sudden he feels this weird need in him that I need to read the Bible. I need to read the Bible. He starts reading the Bible and all of a sudden his soul is so convicted he can barely sleep at night. He's having trouble sleeping. He's scared that he might face the judgment of God. That's the Holy Spirit at work in him. And then all of a sudden he comes to these passages of scriptures about Christ, about Jesus. He pours it all out to the Lord and God saves his soul. His record, all the drugs, all the alcohol, all of it. What happens to it? Wiped off the record and he gets the Holy Spirit. That's in the room today. Or just last week I'm, I'm hearing about a young girl walking in, uh, walking in homosexuality. That's her practice. And she's convincing herself that it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. She hears a verse, a verse from God's word. And God wrecks her soul. Wrecks her soul. And she realizes she's in trouble with God. That she has broken God's commands. And she's convicted of her sin. And all of a sudden she sees the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And it shines before her eyes like it has never shone before. And she's saved. And all throughout this room, think about your testimony. Think about what Christ has done. When you experience the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the gospel was illuminated to you. Let me go to that third heading. I want to talk about the urgency of the gospel response. There must, listen to me, there must be a response to the gospel. You've heard it. And it's urgent. If there is no response in your heart, in your life, to the gospel of salvation, you have no part in it. And there's an urgency here. You hear it in Jesus' voice. He says, listen, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God's at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. There's an urgency. You must respond. You must respond to this gospel. I think you see an urgency in Peter. Think about this. They're cut to the heart. They cry out to Peter, what must we do? They cut to the heart, what must we do? And notice Peter doesn't tell him, look, I want you to go home and I want you, I want you to just consider these things for a little while. He didn't tell him that. He doesn't, he doesn't say, look, you need to really just get, uh, get, get hooked into a local church. He didn't tell him that. He doesn't even tell him to read the gospel of John. He says, listen, it's urgent. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and be baptized. Today is the day of salvation. There's an urgency. You must respond. Jesus had the urgency. Peter had this urgency here. I want you to notice when you read what we just read in Acts 2, this is not a gospel suggestion. He doesn't give them gospel advice. 
He doesn't even really give them a gospel invitation, as we like to say. Although I'm not against, I understand there's some invitation in this idea. But it's not merely an invitation. What does he give him right here? This is an authoritative command in the gospel. This is the authoritative command of the gospel. Repent and be baptized. It's a command from the Holy One. Do you realize this? Everybody here, any person here, that you're, you still fit in the camp, that you have yet to repent and be baptized. You have not responded yet to the gospel. You are not in the neutral zone. You're not. You are constantly, every moment, every second, rebelling against God, disobeying the King of glory. Every moment that you don't obey His command. You're treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath. His heat, the heat of His anger is burning hotter and hotter and hotter. It's a command. It's not a suggestion. He says, repent and believe in the gospel. Do you hear the urgency of that gospel response? It's a command from Christ. Consider some ways that Jesus said this. Same thing. Jesus is not saying repent in these verses. That's not the word that he uses. But he's calling them to the exact same thing. Listen to these words from Jesus in Luke 9, 27. He says this. Whoever does not bear, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Listen to it in Luke 14, 33. He says, whoever does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Think about it. What is it? This urgent call, what is it that keeps you from coming to Christ? What's that important thing? What is that precious thing that keeps you from responding to Jesus? And listen to what Jesus says about those precious things. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and even hate his own life, he cannot be my disciple. It's an urgent call to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let me, let me ask that. Have you done that? All across the room, have you done that? Have you responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ? I, I, know, I know you've heard the gospel. You've heard it today. So I know you've heard it. But have you responded to it? As it says in Acts 2.38, to repent and be baptized. Has, has the blood been put on your door? That's what I'm asking. You know what I mean by that? Has the blood been put on your door? What I mean by that is the, remember that Passover lamb? They would take that lamb in and so that death doesn't come to their house, they would slaughter that lamb. But when God passes by, what does he need to see? It says they would take the blood of that lamb and they put it up on the doorpost. And it says, when, God says, when I see the blood, when I see the blood on the door, I will pass over you. And the plague will not be on you to destroy you. Listen, by repentance, by turning to Christ in repentance, is the blood on the door. Have you truly responded? What about the, the scarlet cord? Is the scarlet cord hanging in your window? Remember Rahab? The men told her, look, we won't destroy you. We're going to destroy all of Jericho. But we won't destroy you and your family under this condition. You've got to have that scarlet cord hanging in the window right there. When we see that cord, we will not bring destruction to your house. Have you repented? Have you, have you responded to these? I know you know the gospel, but have you responded to it in repentance and faith? Because if not, the scarlet cord is not hanging there. And you've got information, but you've got no salvation. You've got information, but not salvation. I, I do feel a need to plead with every soul here to examine yourselves. I, I, I feel a need to do that. Examine yourselves 
As the scripture says, be sure that you're in the faith. That's something we're commanded to do. I've had a lot of reminders of eternity this week. A lot of reminders of eternity. In fact, there was a guy, I believe it was Robert Murray Machane, if I'm not mistaken, that before he would preach every Sunday, he would go visit the dying. He would go visit the dying. And he did it for several reasons, but one of those reasons is it it gave him this sense of eternity. These people that I'm looking at, that I'm holding their hands, they're dying right now, and it gave them a sense of eternity is coming. That this life runs out and there's something next. And so he'd visit the dying, and in a sense, I got a taste of that this week. I got a taste of that almost accidentally. Sweet lady that we love with all our hearts like a grandma to us, Miss Joyce Clark, sitting on her deathbed all this week. And she's on her deathbed. She's in the hospice, and we're getting to visit them. We're getting to visit her. And, and, and I'm getting to hold the hand. I got, I got to hold, just last night she moved on. I'm sitting there last night, and I'm getting to hold the hand and look in the eyes of one that just breathed their last breath. Gone. Just like that. Soul departs from the body. And I got to look at that. And I had the privilege of looking at that. And there was, there was a moment. There was a moment. A few days, uh, about two days just before she died. Okay? Which again was just a few hours, just a few hours ago. And, and, and a few days before she died, she's, she's looking, she's laid back in the bed. And she's looking at my children. She's reminding them. She's telling my children. She said, there's people that come to this point where I'm at right now. And they are scared to death. They are scared half to death. And she says, she says, baby, I don't have any fear. I'm full of peace right now. In fact, she told me she was enjoying the time because she felt like Christ was drawing near to her in her final moments. And so she's urging my kids, she's urging my kids to, to not in these words, but something like this. You need to be ready for your deathbed. You need to be ready for your deathbed. Multitudes come to that place Scared to death of what is to come. And here's this woman because she's in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is her hope. She's repentant. She's turned to Him. She's full of peace. Not afraid in those moments. And so I want to encourage everyone here. Are you prepared for your deathbed? You need to prepare for your deathbed. Have you ever felt what we read right here? Have you ever felt cut to the heart? Have you experienced the conviction of the Holy Spirit? Have you felt cut to the heart over your sin before? I think a lot of times in this, in our culture that we're in now, there's this mindset about salvation, as I said earlier, that it's just an intellectual response. It's just an intellectual agreement to a few facts from the Bible about Jesus. Listen to me. That's not salvation. Have you felt cut to the heart over your sin in a way that you felt your need for Christ? And let me ask you this. When you you who have felt, felt cut to the heart, the conviction of the Spirit, you do realize that's not salvation, right? That's not salvation by itself. If you read verse 37 and verse 38, it says they're cut to the heart and they say, what must we do? And notice Peter doesn't say, you're fine. You got the conviction of the Spirit. He didn't say that. I think too often we grant comfort to people way too quick in this culture. But instead, he sees the conviction of the Spirit. And and, and that in and of itself saves no one. But rather, he commands them, repent and be baptized. So what about you? If you have felt the conviction of the Spirit of God in your life, how did you find comfort? How did you find comfort? Did you just... 
get busy and ignore it and get swallowed up in all the things of the world and drown out the conviction? Is that what you did? Is that how you found comfort? What about a, you felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit? Did, did a preacher lead you through a prayer and grant you false comfort in those moments? Is that what happened? Or did you find comfort because you turned to Christ? The only one that can save you. The conviction itself doesn't save you. Remember the hymn. It says, could my tears forever flow? Could my zeal no respite? No. These for sin will not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Those tears won't save you. You must come to Christ. It's urgent. Eternity is coming soon. So I want you to hear my heart in that. It's, you may be unsure, you may be flippant about a lot of things in your life, but I'm pleading with every soul here, don't be flippant about your eternity. Don't be unsure about that. Last thing I want to say about this passage is that it's a, a model for, for gospel preaching. Final heading on your study guide there. It's a model for gospel preaching. Here's what I mean. I believe... And I hope you believe this with me. I believe that all Christians are called to preach the gospel. All Christians are called to be evangelistic. To get this gospel, this good news out to the multitude. Okay? And so we need a model for this. We need a model for this. And I believe we have it in Acts chapter 2. You know, today there's a gospel being proclaimed today that really is no gospel at all. It's a gospel that, that speaks little things about sin. It's a gospel that, uh, that does not ex exult in the glory of the cross. It's a gospel that preaches a little wimpy Jesus that never rose, never is exalted, never is king of glory, that demands that you repent and be baptized. It's a gospel being preached. So we need a model. And I believe we find it here in Acts chapter 2. I want you to think of how easy would it have been for Luke, the writer, how easy would it have been for him to say this? Acts 2 being very, very short. Something like, the Holy Spirit came. Peter preached the gospel and 3,000 souls were saved. Why didn't he just say that? And I'm telling you, I think this is put forward as a model. He didn't just say Peter preached the gospel. He told us what he said. He didn't just say 3,000 souls were saved. He said this is how they responded. This is a model. We, there's things we can take away here for our evangelism, our responsibility to preach the gospel. So I want to give you three quick points of what we can take away from this for our gospel preaching, every single one of us that are in Christ. And I really want to highlight that third point. So let's do number one. <clears throat> number one, you need the right information. So in gospel preaching, you need the right information. Now we see that as Peter begins in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, through about verse 36, which Dustin taught last week, we see the right information. And what does he preach there? He, preached, he preaches the sinfulness of sin. Think about it. Think about the gospel you preach and the gospel that he preached. He just looked at people and he didn't soft mouth sin. He said, Jesus, whom you crucified. He said, you crucified the Lord of glory. That's what you did. He doesn't soft mouth sin in this gospel. And then he preaches Christ crucified, the one that died for sinners. And then he preaches Christ exalted, the one risen from the dead, who sits as king of the universe and and. And all his enemies are being made subject under his feet. And I want you to encourage you. I want to encourage you. You've got to have the right information. And if you think about it, 
This kind of information is the kind of information that the Holy Spirit begins to do His work of conviction on. It makes sense that they were cut to the heart saying, what should we do? He just told them, you crucified Jesus. You sinned. And He's the glorious one that you sinned against. Of course they're cut to the heart. Of course. So you got to have the right information. T- telling people, merely God has a wonderful plan for your life and some random God loves you. Like th- none, none of those things are going to produce and they were cut to the heart. And they said, what must we do? So you got to have the right information. We move quickly. Number two, not only the right information, but we must have dependency on the Holy Spirit. Do you realize how dependent we are on the Holy Spirit when we do evangelism, when we preach the gospel? Do you realize how dependent we are? You think about this. If the Holy Spirit does not do verse 37, cut to the heart, conviction of sin, if He doesn't do that, repentance makes no sense. What do you mean repent? Turn from what sin? I'm fine. If, if the Spirit of God does not do His work of the conviction of sin, your pleas for people to turn to Christ, they don't make sense. We are dependent upon the Holy Spirit. And I want you to think about it like this. An expression of somebody that wants to get the information right, number one, is they study the Word of God, they hide the Word of God in their heart because they want their gospel to flow out of what this book says is the gospel is what I preach. Well, if that's the expression of getting the right information, what's the expression of being a man or a woman, a gospel preacher that is dependent on the Holy Spirit? What's the expression of that? One who prays? One who cries out to God things like this constantly. God, God, Holy Spirit, please come. Please come and do that work of cutting the heart of this brother that I'm getting to share the gospel with. God, please move here and open their eyes, open their hearts. Help them to see their sin. Help them to see their need for you, Lord. It's prayers. You pray to God. You show. It's an expression of your dependency on God. Your dependency on the Holy Spirit in your gospel preaching. So number one, you got the right information. Number two, dependency on the Holy Spirit. And here's where I want to sit for just a minute and, and, and in closing. Number three, gospel preaching must include calling and pleading. Calling and and pleading. I believe this is often neglected. It's neglected, but I believe that it's necessary. Okay? Jesus did not just drop information on people. He said, the time was fulfilled, the kingdom of God's hand, repent and believe in the gospel. He said, come to me, all you weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest for your souls. That's the kind of stuff that he pleaded with, that he, that he called them to. Gospel preaching involves calling and pleading. We too are not just information dumps of the gospel. Look at chapter 2, verse 40. And I want to zone in here for just a minute. And with many other words, so we didn't get everything Peter said, as I said earlier. With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them. Gospel preaching is not just witnessing to facts, but exhorting them, warning them, calling them. Come. And what's the summary What's the summary of the things Peter was saying? Listen to it. He says, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Can you believe Peter would say something like that? That he would look at them and say, hey, save yourselves. Don't you see this is a crooked generation? Don't go with the flow of what everybody else is doing down that broad path. They're headed toward hell. Save yourselves from this crooked 
generation. What, what about you? If we summarize your gospel preaching on this earth, could we summarize and say, you know what he preaches? He preaches this. Save yourself from this crooked generation. Save yourself from hell. That's the way his preaching is summarized. Is that the way we could summarize your preaching of the gospel? And I'll say this. I can literally remember a time where not only did I think wrongly about this, but I taught wrongly about this. I literally, I, I remember telling people, look, we just give the information of the gospel and they're either going to believe and repent or they don't. That's up to them. We just give the information and hope they do it. We just hope they do it. And I, and I start reading the, the Bible and you got things like 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18 through 20, where he says, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. What are we pleading? Be reconciled to God. Do you hear it? There's a pleading, there's a call, there's a desperation. Not just information dumped in the gospel, but a calling them into it. I remember thinking about this with our children. You know, I think a lot of parents, let me say this to parents quickly. A lot of times we as parents, we might feel like, you know what? We don't want to manipulate our kids. We don't want to do that. So we don't want to say things in such a way that it manipulates them into a decision that's a false decision. But, and so I understand that and I want to be careful of that too. But hear me out. You do not want your children to be under your roof for 18, 20 years. And the way, the way they could summarize what you said to them, don't you want it to be? Save yourselves. Come on, son. Come to Christ. Put your hope in Him. Repent of your sin. Don't you want that to be the way they view you calling them out? I think you can think of it like a burning building, right? If somebody's in a burning building, you don't walk up to it and tap on it real softly and say, excuse me, can I give you some counsel? Right? You say, get out of there. I remember, I remember my son when he was younger. Heading out, going out into the street, about to get just pummeled by a car. What do you think I said? Son, I got some advice for you. Do you, do you think I gave a real gentle, no, no, baby. I said, no, no, stop. Why? Because I don't care. And he, you know what he did? He cried. Daddy screamed at me like it was my fault. He cried because it shook him. It shook him. That, but why did I do that? He's about to be destroyed. So I'm pleading with him. I'm calling him. Don't go that route. Save yourself. <clears throat> I think there ought to be many moments in our lives. This is what I'm mainly getting at. There should be many moments in our lives where we stop giving gospel advice and we rise up like a prophet of old. And we say, thus saith the Lord, repent and be baptized. Wash away your sins. Save yourself from this crooked and perverse generation. Last thing I'll say is this. One way I heard a brother say this is he said, we're supposed to preach to persuade. Look at Acts 26 and we'll close here. He said, preach to persuade. And that stuck out, stuck out to me because I remember being with a brother one time. Me and him are going out to preach the gospel somewhere. And I remember him talking to the person that, that we're sharing the gospel with, this lost person. And the, and the guy said to him, look, we're not trying to persuade you, but, and I was thinking, yes, I am trying to persuade you. What do you mean you're not trying? I'm trying to persuade you. We need a priest to persuade. So let me just give this last example and I'll pray for us. Acts 26, verse 24. So Paul has been preaching the gospel to Agrippa and Festus is there. 
So he's preaching the gospel to Agrippa and all the people are hearing it in the room. And then Festus interrupts him with a loud interruption. Listen to what he says in verse 24. And he was saying these things, as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. So he's preaching the gospel and he gets interrupted by a scream. And the scream says, you are crazy. You're nuts, Paul. And look at his response. Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. But I'm speaking true and rational words. And, and start, start trying to catch where he's trying. He's pleading. He's trying to persuade this king. Listen to it. For the king knows these things. And to him I speak boldly. For I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in the corner. Then he looks at the king and he says... King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, listen, this is the summary. This is the way Agrippa views what Paul is doing to him. Agrippa says this. In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Can you imagine that? Would you persuade me to be a Christian? Agrippa says to Paul. And then Paul says, no, 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 no. I'm not persuading you. No. What does he actually say? He says, and Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. He said, I'm trying to persuade every single one of you to be just like me, except not in jail. <laughs> and so I want to encourage you in light of these things to preach, to persuade. See the beauty of the passage? See it? If there's any here today that are not in Christ, Please hear my weak yet urgent call to you. Come to Christ. And for all gospel preachers, I want to encourage you to think about how do you plead for lost souls. <clears throat> Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Your wonderful word. God, thank you for the work of salvation that you've done all across this room. God, remembering those, those stories, those people, the times that, at all different times, God, Lord, that, that in different ways you did it to where you cut us to the heart. You stabbed us in the heart, Lord, and gave us wounds of love. Thank you, God, that you wounded us, that you might bind us up. Oh, God, I pray that you would be glorified. Cause our hearts to worship over this way that you save souls. This forgiveness of sin, this communion with the Holy Spirit. God, don't let us miss the, the glory, the majesty of these things. Please. Please, Lord. God, I pray, I pray, God, for a lost soul here that you would save them, Lord. That you wake them up from the dead. God, any here that are de depending on their own religiousness, God, what they can do, their own good nature, God. I pray that you would give them repentance, Lord, to turn away from their self-righteousness. God, any here that's just bored, they're just bored with your word, bored with you, Lord Jesus, bored in the fence. God, help them to see how much they have offended you in that. And I pray, Lord, that they would turn from their sin and put their hope in you, Lord Jesus. And God, I pray for us. I pray for Grace Community Church, Lord, that you would fill us, Lord, Make us 
men and women full of your Holy Spirit, faithful gospel preachers, God. Give us many, many moments, God, in the coming weeks, God, the coming months, and for the rest of our lives where we plead with lost souls to repent and be baptized, to come to you. Thank you, Lord, for your help. In Jesus' name, amen.